Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. We're happy to have Philippe Papon on for uh, talking about some tropics. And uh, Philippe works at the National Hurricane Center. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some tropics and just uh, how the season so far has uh, has really uh, kicked off here as we are now entering mid-July as of this recording. So uh, we'll kind of talk about what's happened and, and maybe what to be looking at over the next few months as hurricane season really ramps up. So we appreciate you all joining us tonight. Make sure that uh, you're hitting that subscribe button on YouTube and uh, that subscribe button on your favorite pod podcast platform. So that way, when new episodes like this come out, they automatically come to your end screen box. And um, that way uh, you can listen to the latest updates. So uh, with that, I want to hand it off to our tropical expert, Shay Gibson. And Shay, I'll let you introduce our guests. And kind of kick off the conversation. Philippe, thanks for coming on tonight. Uh, always appreciate your expertise in the field. We, we watched you go through your doctorate, your dissertation, all, all the studies you did on PV streamers and some really fascinating topics. So it's really exciting to see you as a hurricane expert or hurricane specialist at the National Hurricane Center. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey through weather. How did you get involved with weather? You got your PhD at kind of a rather young age, right? Going right into the NHC. But what really got you going? Was it was it tropics? Was it storms? Was it all of the above? I've been kind of a, a lifelong so-called weather weenie, you could say. So it actually started at a pretty early on age, maybe six or seven years old in 1995. And so one thing actually that kind of my passion in meteorology got spawned from was actually fear. I used to be really petrified of thunderstorms and in particular lightning. So anytime there was like a big storm, I would always be sort of, you know, getting all very antsy and worried that, hey, we need to get everybody inside. I'm really worried about all this lightning that's going on. And my parents will always tell the story of how we were in actually Buford, South Carolina on the beach. And there was a big squall line that was coming in on shore uh, over the afternoon. This was probably sometime in like the mid 1990s. And I was just hooting and hodling, telling my family who were outside swimming and having a good time. It's like, we need to get inside. I see the storm coming. I, I don't want anyone to get struck by lightning. And so really it was a fear that originally that kind of got me interested in like following uh, weather, uh, especially storms and tropical cyclones. And so I actually grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, where typically tropical cyclones and tropical storms and hurricanes aren't a big issue, but I would start following it because I was worried, hey, if this is coming to affect me, I, I wanna make sure I'm at getting out of harm's way and my family is also getting out of harm's way. And just gradually sort of over the months and the years that I started following the early on when I was kind of either in kindergarten or elementary school, it turned from something that I was afraid of into something that I actually found really fascinating and got really interested. And so kind of when I was younger, I would, record the weather segments of my local news. Uh, um, it was WLOS channel 13 and then WYFF channel four and sort of upstate South Carolina and the uh, Western North Carolina mountains. And I would watch and listen to both their regular weather reports and especially paid attention to the sort of tropical weather update that they would provide. And this was before I, uh, my family even had cable television. So that was my main source of weather information. I have to and ask really, you, what was that John Sessridge at YFF? Who was at LOS? Yes, John time? Sessridge was the chief meteorologist there. And I think um, at the time at, at WLOS, it was, uh, trying to think who it was. I know Mike, Mike Bettis was there for- Yeah, Mike Bettis was definitely chief meteorologist up there for okay, a number yeah. of years when I would be recording it, their segments, so. <laughs> it was probably Gary Stevenson. Yes, oh, yes. Gary Stevenson Gary. in 95, 96, I think was the chief meteorologist yeah. there. But were you working with or being mentored by any folks like, you know, Rick Nab, of course, 
that was NHC, and then and then of course Levi Cowan, right? Uh, FSU. Did you work with any of these folks in, in tropics to sort of gather ideas, or was this something you kind of did on your own? You know, I was fortunate that while I was in grad school, at least I got to go to all these conferences where I could interact with people like Rick Nab and Levi would be at these conferences, and he was getting his PhD at around the same time that I was. We were about a, a year or so within each other from getting our degrees, and so I got to see a lot of the research that Levi was working on while I was also doing my research up at the University at Albany, and so basically it was, it was great to be able to get feedback and ideas from all these people through going to various conferences. And while I was also a grad student, I got to go down to the National Hurricane Center several times and present seminars on some of my research. And I think that was a really important uh, stage of my career because I was able to kind of get feedback from NHC on what they were looking at for things that they were interested in research to operations type applications. And so some of the work that I did with the Central American gyres, which are these broad circulations over Central America, was really something that Chris Lancy, who also works at the National Hurricane Center, had an interest for the tropical analysis and forecasting branch. And they now actually use some of those sort of diagnostic products that I put together to be able to forecast those types of features in their area of responsibility. I want to start with some basics for our viewers out there in the tropics this year. So you know, we saw a, just an unprecedented 2020, you know, and then last year we got a break. We did have an above average season. We're, we're going into a third La Nina year, which is itself kind of historical. Uh, so tell us, you know, in, in saying that a La Nina year, what does that mean? And what is, how has the season already started out as compared to what we would normally be in July? And what do we have to look forward to? Just talking kind of very basically about what La Nina conditions are. It's like, you know, related to the cooling of sea surface temperatures that take place over the eastern and central Pacific. And there are specific zones where those sort of sea surface temperature uh, anomalies relative to normal are being looked at to be able to determine whether sort of a, a particular event, whether or not you have a La Nina event, which is a cooling of the sea surface temperatures, or an El Nino event, which is a warming of the sea surface temperatures in the east and central Pacific. And typically what happens in a La Nina year is that you have a suppression of convection over that region where you have reduced sea surface temperatures. And because you have reduced convection in that particular region, that tends to allow environmental conditions over the Atlantic basin to become more favorable for tropical cyclone activity because you have a, a general reduction in vertical wind shear over the Caribbean Sea and the lower latitudes of the tropical Atlantic are the so-called main development region in the Atlantic basin. And so that can sometimes allow more sort of seedlings that are coming off of Africa easterly waves and other disturbances across the lower latitudes, that gives them a better shot of potentially developing into a tropical cyclone. And so really La Nina conditions reduce the vertical wind shear over the Atlantic basin. And while it's not the be all end all factor for whether or not a season is over or higher in activity in the Atlantic or lesser than an activity in the Atlantic, it's definitely a significant factor that goes in a lot of seasonal hurricane forecasts. You know, we also see the Saharan air layer, the dust coming off of Africa that keeps the main development region suppressed more or less. So what are you seeing overall in the pattern for homegrown systems? Is there enough organization to see anything yet or we have more, too much upper shear? And then also in the main development region, what are we seeing right now? You're right. We've had quite a bit of dry air over the sort of eastern and central portion of the Atlantic Basin where you typically have sort of easterly waves that are moving off the African coast. And so the Saharan air layer does play a role in helping to produce a more, a more stable than average atmosphere in that area of the Atlantic Basin. And that can certainly sort of inhibit tropical cyclone activity. And then in addition to that, 
you have other things like uh, intraseasonal oscillations. And so right now you have sort of a, an area of suppressed or so-called so upper-level convergence over the Atlantic Basin. And that's helping to also suppress tropical um, convection, shower and thunderstorm activity over the basin. Also, there is reanalysis that is going ongoing with hurricanes and summaries that come later on. You may not, for a very strong storm, you may not have all of the data for several months, right? So is that also something you're a part of? So you're absolutely correct. At the end of each season, we typically go and conduct a what's called a tropical cyclone report. And so that basically goes back pours through the data that we collected for that particular storm and basically do a, an additional evaluation to basically either correct things that may have been different than what we originally put operationally. And we also gather basically all of our surface observations from impacts from tropical cyclones, whether or not that's over the United States or over Central America and the Caribbean islands. And we compile that all together into a, a very detailed report for each of these events. And so that's basically sort of the final quote, best track of what the tropical cyclone did for the season. And it gives us a chance to basically provide additional context for these individual tropical cyclones. I, I know that the uh, Central American gyre is something that uh, really fascinates you, and you've done a lot of work on that. Uh, to explain to the, the audience what that is about, you mentioned earlier, it's a, sort of a broad and a lazy circulation that develops over uh, Central America at certain parts of the year, and uh, they can... Uh, they can uh, have a, 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 an influence on tropical cyclones. They can uh, sort of help to, to cause them to develop and even in some cases become one. So uh, I'll, I'll let you uh, explain uh, what your work is there. But the first thing I wanted to ask you was uh, who actually uh, discovered that these things were, were happening and uh, what inspired you to do the research on them? Really, this is kind of, uh, kind of going back to when I started, started thinking of doing this in grad school. The original idea actually didn't come from systems that we saw over Central America, but were actually phenomena that were identified in the West Pacific. And so actually Mark Lander, who unfortunately recently passed away, did a lot of work on so-called monsoon gyres, which were these very broad and disorganized uh, closed circulations that occurred in the West Pacific Basin. And what he noticed is that you sometimes got these very huge circulations that would form with a very large convective envelope of, of shower and thunderstorm activity. And then you would get these little sort of almost like smaller scale circulations that would be rotating cyclonically around them. And some of those would end up becoming very small scale tropical cyclones in the West Pacific Basin. And the things he noticed were twofold, basically that it was a favorable environment where tropical cyclones could develop. And then in addition, it would cause significant deviations in the motion of a tropical cyclone if it were interacting with this much larger scale circulation that it was embedded in. And so some of that work that was done in the West Pacific, I looked at and I, Lance Bosart, my advisor at the time, had just completed this field campaign in St. Croix and uh, uh, Puerto Rico called PREDICT. And it was basically the pre-genesis stage of tropical cyclones and trying to understand all the features and all the environmental factors that go into a developing tropical cyclone. And one particular case in 2010 was Tropical Storm Nicole, which formed in the Northwestern Caribbean Sea, but its unique characteristic was that it was an incredibly broad circulation. And it really didn't look like a tropical cyclone. It was more of this sort of broad monsoonal gyre type 
circulation. And in this case, most of the vorticity that ended up becoming tropical storm Nicole was kind of forming along the outer periphery of this broader circulation that then moved northeastward across Cuba and then ended up producing very heavy rainfall up the eastern seaboard. I think there was a, a significant flooding event from this particular system over the eastern North Carolina uh, coastline. And so this was back in late September of 2010 or even early October 2010. And the initial development of this broader sail uh, circulation seemed to be related to sort of larger scale flow patterns across both the Caribbean Sea and then also the Eastern Pacific, where you'd have sort of enhanced westerly low level flow in the Eastern Pacific that was basically running up the higher terrain of Central America. And then you had enhanced sort of easterly low level flow across the Caribbean Sea that would have a similar effect on the opposite coastlines across Central America and the Yucatan Peninsula. And so, that particular case in 2010 was really kind of the kickoff start for my research in looking at what we termed Central American gyres. But essentially, they're very similar to what you see in the West Pacific uh, with monsoon gyres. The only big difference being that they tend to develop and form over Central America rather than over the open waters like in the West Pacific Basin. And these unfortunately can be very impactful events, not in terms of wind speed with these events, but just in terms of the fact that they provide a very favorable background environment for widespread heavy rainfall from both the showers and thunderstorms that are associated with and rotating around the larger circulation. And so unfortunately, a lot of these events have been associated with catastrophic flooding and mudslides over Central America, and then also over adjacent areas such as Jamaica, Cuba. And then, as I mentioned with the Nicole case, a lot of that moisture ended up producing heavy rainfall over the Eastern United States. When we're talking about these gyres as well, we see sometimes fluctuations in the easterly trades where we get a surge of energy um, that comes from, from East to West across the Caribbean. And it seems to pile up over by the by the Yucatan area, right? So along the Western Caribbean. So talk about it in terms of easterly trade pulses versus the gyres in motion, right? So we, we look at the available heat content, the you know, TCHP, look at sea surface temperatures, the troughing mechanisms, all of that going on. But what did the easterly trades have anything to do with it at all? So yes, in some cases they do. So a lot of times these sort of broad circulations, the way they start organizing is that you basically have a, a sequence of easterly waves or African easterly waves that are moving into the Caribbean and are associated with like a local enhancement in the easterly low-level trade wind flow. And so in this case, a lot of times those easterly waves, once they start moving over Central America, they interact with the larger scale flow. And if you have westerly low-level flow in the East Pacific, it slows down their motion to a crawl. And so you basically get a bunch up of a bunch of different easterly waves over Central America that kind of almost comprise the northern side of the larger scale circulation. And then kind of alluding to sort of the westerly low level flow in the East Pacific, a lot of times that's driven by sort of intraseasonal oscillations like um, the Madden-Julian oscillation, which is a sort of well-known factor to both influence overall convective activity in a particular region, but also tropical cyclone activity as well. So if you get a favorable convective pulse of the Madden-Julian oscillation over Central America, that helps to enhance sort of the westerly low-level flow and can also enhance the overall convective activity with these particular features. And so we, at least the research that I did when I was up in Albany, noticed that there was a significant enhancement of Central American gyre activity when you did have a favorable convective envelope of the MGO moving over Central America and the Western Hemisphere in general. Is there a particular time of the year that that's most common? Yes. So that's that you hit the million dollar question. So the interesting thing with these events is that 
unlike the hurricane season, which you typically have a, a seasonal ramp up in June, July, August, and peaks in September before kind of starting to trail off, Central American gyre activity has two peaks in activity. Uh, typically kind of early in the, or even before the hurricane season in May and June, you have this initial peak and where you get a lot of these very broad circulations over Central America. There's actually a big drop off in July and August. So basically the time period we are in right now, it's very uncommon to get these broad circulations over Central America. And part of the reason why that is, is because the low level trades over the Caribbean increase so much so that it makes it very difficult for even westerly low level flow to exist in the East Pacific in any context. And so you basically, most of the systems that are forming in July, as we've witnessed over the last week or two are actually in the East Pacific that form from a very strong either monsoon trough or intertropical convergence zone that's located south of Central America at that, this time of year. However, later in the season in sort of September, October, and November, you get this sort of secondary peak in activity. And that's a lot of times associated with sort of a, a turnaround where you now start to get more westerly low level flow in the East Pacific again, and allows sort of most like a northward migration of the intertropical convergence zone over Central America that allows sort of the initial convective to start forming and allowing sort of the broader circulation to take shape. So yeah, that's a great question. Two peaks, May and June, and then September through November is where you see the majority of the Central American gyre activity. And there's a lull where we are right now. Something that we've noticed over the last few years, um, kind of becoming a scary trend uh, per se with these tropical storms or tropical systems, is when they are approaching landfall, we are actually seeing intensity pick up. And uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts to that, if that's just kind of a trend that we're seeing or, uh, or, or kind of maybe some of the science behind why we're seeing this scary trend uh, where a day before this storm is continuing to strengthen uh, as it's heading towards land. Right, yeah, no, you're right. There's been a couple of recent examples of that. Uh, 2020, of course, Laura, that was rapidly intensifying kind of in the northern Gulf of Mexico. And then just last year with Hurricane Ida, as it approached also the Louisiana coastline uh, a little bit further to the east. So yeah, you're right. There's been a couple of recent examples of rapidly intensifying systems as they approach the Gulf Coast. But there's also been some counter examples to that as well, too. So Hurricane Delta also in 2020 was approaching the Gulf Coast, but actually was gradually weakening as it was approaching the Gulf. Now that was in October. And you, typically when sea surface temperatures are decreasing in the northern Gulf of Mexico. But really, I, while there have been a couple of recent cases, I still think typically it's sort of the, it really depends on kind of what stage of the life cycle a tropical cyclone is in uh, as to determine on whether or not you're going to potentially see something intensifying as it's approaching the coast versus weakening. And so, for example, um, Hurricane Opal in uh, 1995 is so kind of a, a blast from the past here from another very active hurricane season there. It sort of had a, a different case where it had peaked early on in its life cycle further to the south in the central and southern Gulf of Mexico. And then as it was approaching the Florida Peninsula, it started unraveling as it was moving into a higher vertical wind shear environment and lower sea surface temperatures. And so I think systems that are kind of early on in their stage of development, especially if they're in favorable atmospheric and thermodynamic conditions, have an opportunity to intensify rather substantially as they approach the coast. But systems that have already had a long lifespan on the order of like, you know, four to five days prior to approaching the coastline, a lot of times already kind of have developed a, a core that requires sort of a lot of continuing maintenance in order to allow it to continue to intensify. And a lot of these sort of longer lived storms tend to already start to be decaying as they're moving into the higher latitudes. And really, so 
in addition to just the lifespan of a tropical cyclone, it really is a matter of just how favorable the environmental conditions are. And typically, you know, you, as you move into higher latitudes in the Gulf of Mexico, it's an environment where the shear is typically increasing and tropical cyclones don't like shear. They tend to be uh, significantly disrupted by it as it sort of tilts the overall heating profile of the hurricane. And so while we've had a couple of recent examples of rapidly intensifying systems, I, I wouldn't say that's going to necessarily become the norm. It's gonna be largely determined on what those environmental conditions and lifespans of those storms are as they approach the coastline. The viewers rapid intensification is, is more than 35 miles an hour wind increase in intensity over a 24 hour period. I think at one point they were using pressure for that along with winds, but that, that's been gone. It's, it's all wind speeds at this point. Um, and so there's also talk about uh, the scale and whether or not to make some changes there not just based on winds, but rain as well. But let's talk about rapid intensification. So there's, there's long-term belief that sea surface temperatures have a lot to do with this, but we also know that secondary circulations and the right alignment of a mid-level low and, and the correct doming above it helps out as well. So tell us, in your opinion, what rapid intensification really means and maybe some of the environmental criteria that goes into it. There was actually just a recent conference uh, a couple months ago in May in uh, New Orleans. They uh, AMS puts on this uh, hurricane meteorology conference, and there was a lot of really good topics on rapid intensification at that conference. And one that really struck me was somebody, uh, I'm trying to remember who the researcher was, but they were basically diagnosing two types of rapid intensification, the sort of so-called asymmetric rapid intensification and then symmetric rapid intensification. And what that really means is that in some cases, the tropical cyclone starts off very sort of lopsided, where all the convection is occurring in one quadrant of the storm. And what happens is that the convection focuses in that quadrant because of vertical wind shear that's disrupting the storm. But what it's able to do is basically, as convection is rotating cyclonically around the storm, it begins to pivot and move into sort of the up shear quadrant, which means kind of the quadrant that the vertical wind shear that's sort of disrupting that, displacing that convective structure. It's now trying to counter that particular uh, wind shear environment. And when you're able to get that convection to pivot and start rotating around the low level circulation in a form that it basically forms a smaller inner core, the system is still able to rapidly intensify as long as it's able to kind of create that sort of more symmetric type uh, system. And so that's sort of the asymmetric stage of development. And then there are other cases where a storm already starts off very symmetric and is basically gradually able to develop deeper and deeper convection around a relatively uh, circular area around the storm. And systems like that then often then are able to rapidly intensify after you know, a development period over a, a couple of days. And so it's really interesting from some of this research, the asymmetric stage is a lot of times very much determined on uh, stochastic or random processes associated with the convection. And so in some cases you get the sort of like almost kidney bean type shape of convection and you have this sort of very strong stretching of the individual spin associated with that sort of convection in that quadrant. And if you're able to get very strong sort of convection that then pivots into the larger scale circulation, that can sometimes initiate sort of an asymmetric rapid intensification process. While the symmetric stage is much more sort of dependent on the broader scale low level circulation where you just have convective elements that are all contributing together to rapidly spin up the wind field of the tropical cyclone in that case. So um, in terms of rapid intensification, 
Obviously, you want to see typically low vertical wind shear, high sea surface temperatures above 27 or 28 degrees Celsius, and then a very moist uh, relative humidity environment through a deep column of the atmosphere. But uh, in the case of asymmetric rapid intensification, a lot of times that takes place even in moderate vertical wind shear environments. And so it's just sort of interesting to see all the different flavors that you can get development with TCs. And there's still a lot of research to be done, but it's interesting that there's almost these two different types of stages that you can still get the same result. So uh, the fun questions, Philippe, are just a, a, a way to get to know you better and, and get to know uh, where you're from and where you are now. Tell us uh, more about Greenville and, and what you like to do there. What's something that uh, a visitor to Greenville uh, really ought to do while they're there and uh, you know your favorite place to eat when you're visiting home? One of the areas that I love to go to every time I go back home is like the Reedy River Falls area. There's a nice drawbridge oh, yeah. that goes across the Reedy River, which basically bisects downtown Greenville. And that area has really just been reworked. Uh, there's a, a really nice local park there that people can walk around, enjoy their day. Plenty of like really nice restaurants and other places for both kids and adults like to hang out and have a good time and enjoy the wonderful environment of Greenville. It's really, you know, it's, it's become one of my favorite places to go when I go home. And so, yeah, in terms of restaurants though, oh, there's, there's so many good ones to choose from. And it seems like every time I go back, there's, a new place to try out. And I'm trying to think right off the top of my head. I mean, even though this is a chain, like Tupelo Honey is all, always very popular, people that are visiting the area. And then there's now a, a host of different breweries that have actually become established in Greenville. And that's something that didn't exist when I was growing up. But now that I go back, I have all these new really cool places to check out and hang out. Um, one thing that just opened recently that I actually haven't been to, but I'm really willing to check out is the new Unity Park that just, I think, recently was dedicated and opened. And that's supposed to be a really excellent area for people to check out, enjoy. And then uh, part of the uh, so-called Swamp Rabbit Trail is a really nice area that people, if you like to ride your bike, there's a huge trail that goes from Greenville, basically, all the way up to Traveler's Rest, which is located to the north. A lot of people love to frequent that area. And there's also lots of wonderful places to check out, restaurants and other things along the way. And so really, yeah, I, you know, I can't say enough good things about Greenville. It's, it, it's really, I, I feel like, become a very popular place for people to hang out and have a good time. And, you know, it's, I, it, it's really kind of, you know, I almost wish I, I could go back more often than I am able to now. It's just, it's a beautiful area. Uh, tell me what you like about Asheville and, uh, and, and maybe your favorite place to eat there too. If you love the mountains, obviously the Bridge Parkway is only just a little less than you know a 10 minute drive away and I, I definitely frequented up in the Blue Ridge Parkway hanging out just watching the clouds grow as, as a weather weenie yeah. that would be a popular pastime in the summer where you get the building convection and thunderstorms over the the uh, uh, Appalachian Mountains and then in terms of food ah oh, man you're it's it's been now more than a decade since I lived in Asheville and that it's also changed quite a bit since then I'm just trying to think of a favorite place uh, there are a couple of good areas yeah. Gosh, yeah. if only Evan Evan Fisher were with us, he'd, he'd I know. be all over it. Tell us in on all the <laughs> yeah. happenings there. Yes. Tell us uh, what what you like about Miami, what you like doing in Miami, and uh, maybe tell me the, the best place to find a Cuban sandwich while I'm down there because I really love a good Cuban. You're you're going to be embarrassed by me, but I don't know a ton of really good Cuban places. But uh, one of the favorite restaurants that I like to go to, I'm I'm more of kind of like a sushi kind of guy, and there's this place in downtown Doral called Firefly that's sort of like Asian fusion and it's 
one of the places I've been to many times, even in the last couple of months. Uh, in terms of uh, other things like drinking or beer, there's a nice place actually in Doral called Tripping Animals Brewery. And that's a really fun place. I've been with my colleagues many a time and it's sort of also kind of a hidden gym. It only recently opened just a couple of years ago. And uh, it's a very popular hangout spot for us after work sometimes. Philippe, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight here on the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, if you have a social media or a website or anything like that you'd like to promote, we'd love to give you that opportunity. So anyone who is uh, watching tonight or listening on the podcast platforms, uh, if they want to follow you, uh, how can they do that? So I, so I am pretty active on Twitter. Uh, I'm a weather nerd, so I love to discuss anything weather related, not just hurricanes and tropical cyclones, but anything that's going on across the world. And so my Twitter handle is at PPPAPIN or PPPAPIN. And then I, I also do have a website that I originally created in grad school, but I'm still trying to maintain it, even though it, it gets kind of busy during the season and the hurricane season. And it's actually uh, very similar. So the name of the past uh, of the website is just uh, www.pppappen.com. And it has all my weather interest and information. And I have a few sort of uh, updating graphics on both gyre activity and other sorts of phenomena there too. So, yeah. De definitely worth the follow on Twitter. So if you're not following him, go do that right now. It's uh, it's a great follow. So uh, we appreciate you joining us tonight and we appreciate you all who are watching us and listening to us. Uh, don't forget to hit that subscribe button here on YouTube. So that way you're alerted of our new episodes coming out. Or if you're not listening or watching on YouTube and you're listening on our podcast, make sure you go to your favorite podcast platform Hit the subscribe button there, leave a comment or a, uh, a rating. Those always help us out and get the word out to uh, new folks about our podcast. So until next time, we hope you have a great week and we'll see you back here on the Carolina Weather Group real soon.